Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Detect and Protect, the Australian Biosecurity Podcast. This podcast series is all about sharing information on biosecurity and the difference that this makes to our everyday lives. Today, we're going to be talking about a very annoying little bug. It's called the brown marmorated stink bug. It is a pest that is known to hitchhike on personal goods, transport, shipping containers, and imported items coming into Australia. If established in Australia, it is a very huge potential biosecurity risk, especially to crop plant industries and also to over 300 ornamental plant species. Our plant industries would be impacted greatly if this was to come in and set itself up in our country. We currently have strong measures in place to keep our plants BMSB free. And one of these identifying methods is an app that is being developed that can hopefully identify the BMSB and helping to stop a potential spread before it even starts. So it is an absolutely fascinating topic today, and I'm very much looking forward to speaking to my very special guest that is joining me on the podcast. It is Dr. Alexander Schmidt-Lebun. He's a fantastic scientist from the CSIRO, and Dr. Schmidt-Lebun is at the forefront of the electronic app that is being developed to identify the brown marmorated stink bug. Today, we'll be learning more about how the app came to be and the process that it's going through in its development at the moment, and also talking about the risk that BMSB poses to Australia. So without any further ado, let's welcome our guest to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Alexander Schmidt-Lebun. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me here. Not a problem, Alexander. It's absolutely great. I'm very much looking forward to this chat today about this app that is being developed and also our little friend, the brown marmorated stink bug. First of all, can you please tell us a little bit about your role at the CSIRO and also your involvement with biosecurity? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Although we're talking about a pest insect today, funnily enough, my background is actually that of a plant systematist, taxonomist, and phylogeneticist. And the way I came at this is because in my role as a taxonomist, there's two sides to my work. The first is to name plants and understand how they are related and should be classified. And then the flip side of that is producing identification tools that allow uh, any kind of end user who has a specimen, they need to put a name on it, to identify that specimen, figure out where it belongs in the classification and what name the specimen should have. And one of the areas where identification is absolutely critical is biosecurity, because we need to know if this is, you know, a pest or a weed of uh, concern or whether it's a native species that we don't need to destroy or don't want to destroy, etc., etc. And so a few years ago, 2016-17, coming from my perspective as a botanist, I developed a weed seed identification key for the Department of Agriculture at the time. And after that, we then started looking into uh, to what degree artificial intelligence image classification can already be useful to make more user-friendly identification tools where they don't need, the end users don't need to know technical terminology. It's like, like basically having a taxonomist looking over your shoulder and recognizing something for you. And again, we started doing that with wheat seeds, but talking to the department, uh, we then soon learned that uh, a much greater imminent problem uh, was the brown marmorate stink bug and so then I teamed up with my colleagues at the Australian National Insect Collection and CSRO to move into that area and, and that is what where we arrive at today. 
I love that. I must say that's very interesting to me because being able to have, like you said, that that presence of somebody you know over your shoulder, as such as we're saying, it must make that identification process really well. It's it's helpful. I wouldn't say easy, but it makes it easier for the end user. Just quickly on that, how how extensive uh, is that process when it comes to actually identifying, be that a seed or a bug or something like that? Because that that's quite fascinating to me. I've always wondered who puts uh, all, all the fantastic names against a, a plant name or, or a species. Um, how intensive is that process, Alexander? Yeah, well, with traditional methods, uh, again, it, it does take a lot of training and a lot of work because uh, not only do you have to be able to understand the terminology to describe to your identification tool what you're seeing there, basically. So, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. again, I'm coming from a sound botanical perspective. You have to know what a barbellate pappus is or a carpopodium or something like that to describe my daisy seeds. And there's, you know... Oh, a, that's easy. A, yeah, yeah, of course. According, <laughs> according uh, terminology in, in the bugs or in the beetles or in moths mm-hmm. or whatever groups you're concerned with. Um, and uh, only then can you actually answer the questions in that identification tool. And then the really old ones, the traditional ones that taxonomists uh, have produced for decades, they are dichotomous. So another complicating factor is that you have to answer all the questions in a certain order. And if the first question is about something that has broken off in your specimen, for example, then you need to go both ways and it soon becomes very wow. tedious and complicated. So having having a, a you know, more intuitive image recognition system that is like a taxonomist that really knows their group and just looks at something and goes, oh, I, I think I know. Uh, what this is, let's let's check that uh, against you know an example image, for example. That is kind of a much much easier approach, with a caveat, of course, that it needs it it can only work in a group where you actually have visual characteristics that allow you to distinguish. Like if it is a group of beetles where you have to dissect the genitalia to be able to identify them, well, just pointing an app at it won't won't do the trick, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that, that's fascinating. And I think what I'm gathering from that as well, Alexander, is that there's a process now of better record keeping as well when you're talking about photos, when you're talking about you know the pathways that you're going down, the better that we're keeping those records of, of what we've gone down for certain species, that's, that's, we can easily reference that as we move forward. And, and again, perhaps easy is not the word, but it, it makes that tedious process a little bit uh, more simple as we move on. With regards to our little friend, the BMSB, um, what can you tell us about it and its risk to Australian plant life, please. So the brown marble stink bug itself uh, is part of a group of thousands of stink bugs of pentatomids worldwide. Uh, they are plant suck, uh, sap sucking herbivores. And uh, the brown marble stink bug itself uh, is particularly, it has got two key problems. First of all, it is a very generalist herbivores, so it can damage lots of different plant species as opposed to you know, being specialized to very few close related plant species. There's a lot of different agriculture and horticultural sectors, therefore, that might be affected, uh, in particular mm-hmm. fruit and nut trees. So it could be anything from apples and pears across stone fruit, uh, hazelnuts to grapes, uh, for example. And the second problem is its ecology makes it a particularly um, successful invader because a lot of species, they might be carried in with, you know, a, a cargo shipment or, uh, you know, in the, in the luggage of a tourist, for example. But then there's a single individual that has arrived in a new country and generally mm-hmm. they don't establish because they don't find a mate. They, they just die out unless they're already pregnant uh, with eggs or something like that. 
Whereas the brown marmorated stink bug, um, they use pheromones to attract each other in larger groups. And then together they seek a place where they can hibernate, where they are somewhat insulated from the cold. That might be, for example, the hollow of some kind of, you know, shipment, for example, of pottery or a crate or something like that, that they identify as, as a somewhat protected area. Then they get moved to a new country and uh, out comes an entire group of stink bugs of the same species. So Im- immediately they have got a little population. They can mate, they can produce wow. offspring. So that's that's fascinating to me, Alexander. In that, you, I guess, yeah, speaking to to everybody listening to this podcast, what what we're saying here is that it's would, would it be fair to say it's smart enough that it knows to sort of bring a bring a troop with it when it goes places. It's it's in its ecology to go right. Let's get let's get a group of us together before we actually sort of not that they're prepared to start a migration, but that was sort of when, when you're talking about that pheromone attraction and that sort of thing. It's almost like this is the way we're going to come together because that would sort of assist it in terms of. Of, of getting it established somewhere is needing that mate. Is that right? Like you, you effectively, it needs that mate, and and you need that ability to, um, to procreate to actually start a colony or whatever it is, or, or we call it an outbreak. But for, for them to start a, you know, a, a colony or whatever the case may be. Yeah, well, smart is of course a bit of a loaded word. The behaviour is presumably <laughs> all, yeah, all just instinctual, but it it kind of yes, touches yes. upon a very interesting question in invasion biology. And, and note that I'm not really uh, an invasion biologist, so uh, you would have to talk to a specialist in that field, really. But uh, it's been a long-going controversy and question: What exa- are there actually characteristics that predispose a plant or an animal for mm. being a good invader, and would that allow us to find out some that are a risk factor before they even come into the country or before they even leave their, their indigenous area. So that, that's a very, very interesting question. And certainly things like being able to reproduce if there's only one of you in a new area is, for example, an immediate advantage even for a plant if you just get a single seed in an area and it can reproduce without finding mates. And the same for insects. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I can only say that that seems like an obvious factor, but it's not really my core area of expertise to speculate on others. <laughs> well, I must say your, your speculation in other areas is, is fascinating me. You're a very knowledgeable man. When we talk about uh, the BMSB, um, what, can we, what can you tell us about the differences when we talk about the Australian native stink bugs? I know I've seen you know, native stink bugs here in Australia before, but the actual brown marmorated stink bug, um, you, you've talked about it a little bit there, but then there's also concepts that have to do with, with their enemies as well and that sort of thing. What can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, so uh, I've already touched upon uh, one of the main problems with it, that is that it's very generalist, that it will affect a lot of plants, whereas many native species are specialized. Uh, there is the morphological aspect, but precisely because it is not so easy to immediately recognize them for the non-specialist, we need identification tools. And then what you're uh, referring to is um, is uh, the enemy release hypothesis. So one of the key problems, and that's not just for the Brahma or it's stink bug, that's for a lot of invasive species, uh, many, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is that if they are brought to a new naive area, they don't have any natural enemies. So there will uh, not be any parasites or uh, diseases or something like that in Australia that keeps the population in check. Um, and, and that is then... That is the hypothesis why invasive species, be they insect or weeds, are often so um, overwhelming because nothing controls them. 
Yeah, understood. So, so with that, then, uh, and I know you've answered this, you know, somewhat previously before, but but expanding on on the way that they could arrive. Now, it's it's a, it's a bug that's uh, originally home in Asia. Is that correct? Yeah. It's sort of it's made itself, um, you know, endemic to other areas as well. Now, you know, when when we talk about North America, Europe, and that sort of thing, but that's where it originated. So we know that you know the way that it that comes together, it can move on cargo and, and and imported goods and that side of things. But in terms of, I guess, my question question is more so, you know, how difficult or easy would it be for it to become apparent in Australia if we got in a position where there was, you know, enough of them that managed to hitchhike their way and, and make their way here, you know, that, that establishment process, you know, how would that work and, and, and then in terms of its actual ability to come out of that hibernation and, and, and start that process um, and if we didn't get onto it early enough to, to discover and destroy it, you know, how would that work for us? Yeah, well, um, I, I should hasten to add that the key use for this uh, app that we're talking about today would be actually at the border. So, so that would be at the front mm-hmm. line where you try to even, you know, discover it before it ever establishes. Um, so you're just trying to keep it out. The second uh, level of defense would then be if it starts establishing itself somewhere behind the border, you would want to eradicate it. And mm. if you have, you know, a pest that is so established that you have no chance of eradication anymore, then you get to the containment phase. We're just trying to keep it, you know, contained in a certain area and not move to another state, for example. And then finally, mm. if, if, if it has actually become endemic in a country, then uh, you would have to manage it, for example, with biological control by trying to bring any parasites into the country under very controlled conditions that would, that would manage it. So uh, in the last few years, we actually had a case where the brown marmorated stinkbug was discovered trying to establish itself in the Sydney area uh, in in horticultural uh, companies and so on. Mm -hmm. And the Department of Agriculture uh, made uh, an enormous effort and uh, was uh, apparently able to eradicate the species again. So that has happened. And that is also, of course, what... um, brings a sense of urgency to uh, trying to get this species, you know, uh, at the border already. Because it's always, you know, it's always easier, cheaper and safer the, the earlier in this, this progression from keeping it out, eradicating, you know, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. containing and, con- and managing it is. Yeah, the, the earlier you, uh, you get rid of it, the, the better, the more efficient. And I know we talk about that you know, in our department as a whole uh, when it comes to the work that Darwa does and, and working with agencies like yourself is that primary prevention is always the key. We, we, the, the, the fact if we can get on top of things early, prevent them before they come to our borders, you know, do things offshore, treatments offshore, measures, you know, and I know that with the, the BMSB uh, measures that we've had in place over the last few years, we've had different phased measures about the way that we've actually implemented different things to make sure that, you know, industry, you know, are on board as well and, and everybody that's that's involved in this this huge business that, that we call uh, primary industries of, of import and export that that's such a massive part of that just a quick question before I before I move on I wanted to ask a quick one about if it was to get established and, and of course you know what, what you can tell us about this but if it was to get established in a set area in a set state let's say New South Wales how easy or difficult is it for it to then get to another state? Is it just a process then of it sort of needing to hitchhike its way there again? Or if it actually sets itself up, can it actually move? I mean, I know I've seen pictures of BMSB before where it's, you know, on the side of a house in a country where it's endemic and, and there'd have to be hundreds of thousands of them in, in one certain area. Is it just as simple as they can just get up and fly away in move areas or is it a little bit more complicated than that? 
Yeah, well, I, I guess uh, ideally you talk to an invasion biologist who study the species more, you know, how, how it has spread around mm -hmm. America, for example. But um, certainly it is a flight-capable insect, so certainly it would move certain distances out of its own accord and maybe, you know, uh, with a bit of help of strong winds being blown even further than it would by itself. But I think, again, uh, another key risk would be that it just hitchhikes on cargo that's being carried around mm. the country. And uh, once you've got it in Australia, I think it will be much much more difficult because you have less controls uh, between states than you would have at the border to Australia. So, again, Absolutely. it comes back to, you know, let's, let's try to keep it out of the country in the first place and then <laughs> it will all be yeah. easier, yeah. That's that's always the key. I'm going to mark that down with my producers. An invasion biologist is what we're going to look at yes. you know, at some point. That, that all sounds fantastic. And, and thanks for the idea, Doctor. That's much appreciated. You talked before about the background behind, uh, behind creating and identifying the app uh, for me at BMSB. You talked about the process of, of seed identification and having you know that toolkit behind you of sort of that you know that that assistance over your shoulder. Uh, can you can you expand on that in any way? And can you tell us about how it actually came to be? You know, with the department. I know that our department. Has a, has a big focus on innovation moving forward and, and that's been sped up with the pandemic over the last two years. So how did it sort of come to be in, in that respect when it comes to funding and, and, and partnering with, with our department? Yeah, I should start then with the, the genesis of the app. Uh, again, that is slightly recapitulating what I said earlier, but um, the, the problem that I saw with the identification key I made for the weeds, it was again, the end user needs to understand the terminology, at least to a degree, even if I try to make it as clear as possible. And the more species you put in there, the more overwhelming uh, the possibilities and the amount of questions become. So then mm -hmm. we thought, well, can, can we use it? Uh, can we use uh, image classification via, uh, via artificial intelligence to help us there? And because I just come out of weed seeds, we, we tried a weed seed model. And we teamed up, that was in 2018, uh, with Microsoft um, and co-invested in wow. making the app prototype based on our understanding at the moment of what the needs of the department were. I mean, obviously, this is, this, you know, hadn't been adopted by the department anything yet, but, but just, you know, the, the conversations that I had, I kind of understood, well, this is the kind of functionality that might be really useful to people who have just worked with on this identification key. And so uh, Microsoft put in money to get the app coded uh, by a compass called Altus, and we Amazing. put in, you know, uh, the, the, you know, we photographed uh, seeds, we trained the AI model, and so on and so on. We put that together. And this is still, by the way, um, the most convenient way for me to demonstrate this potential solution to people because those weed seeds, you can just carry them around in a little vial. They're, you know, very, very <laughs> stable. Uh, you wouldn't do that with a, in your pocket. Yeah, you wouldn't do that with yeah. a stink bug model. You wouldn't fly no. to Victoria, for example, from here, and then, you know, half the legs have broken off potentially or something like that. So, so it's really convenient just to pull the seeds out and demonstrate that. And so uh, then we uh, had conversations with um, the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, in particular with the uh, Australian Chief Plant Protection Office. And uh, we partnered up and got funding for a feasibility study on the uh, stink bug identification using the exact same approach, the, sa the same image classification approach and the same app format. 
um, through the Biosecurity Innovation Program in 2019-20. And so we're now on the second round currently where we have got uh, another round from the Biosecurity Innovation Program to expand the stink bug uh, model to uh, around 40 species based on a priority list from DOOR so that you know it comes to the point where it will actually really be useful beyond a feasibility study and can be deployed. At the same time, we are exploring uh, hymenopterans, so non-European honeybees and uh, the bumblebee that has been established in Tasmania, for example, to see mm. how that works. I mean, not that I've got any doubts about the bumblebee, but for example, about distinguishing different honeybee species, that's a bit trickier. And okay. again, at the same time, DOOR is currently doing uh, end-user testing. So I think nearly 50 people uh, have got the app prototype with the Stinkbug model on their devices now, and they are providing feedback about what they like about the functionality, how it handles, what they would like to see changed or added mm -hmm. in the case that the department decides to either adopt this and build on the prototype or, you know, re-implement the functionality in, in, you know, in, in a new code base. Is it fair for me to assume as well that there's a there's a, a quite a diverse range of people that are using it in our department? When you're talking forty to fifty people, uh, there'd be there'd be a, a different people that are on the ground in terms of our inspectors, our assessment staff, you know, in terms of usability. So it'd be a pretty diverse you know group of people that would be testing it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's my understanding. I mean, I obviously haven't drawn up the list that was you know teams in door, but my understanding is that mm -hmm. it is both door inspectors and people from uh, industry partners under approved arrangements uh, who are considered here, and then also uh, entomologists and all. So the kind of people who would have been, you know, sent specimens for identification. Fantastic, fantastic. All right, Alexander, the, the big serious questions now for you. How uh, will the app work? I mean, we've talked about, you know, people that would potentially um, be using it. And, and of course, that, that comes down to the app sort of being operationalized and, and that side of things and, and getting its final approval stages. But how will the app specifically work? You mentioned a little bit of, of the process before with the seeds, but in terms of uh, this for the stink bug, how are we looking to, to use this app? So, yeah, again, uh, the department may obviously uh, find additional functionality that it wants added before it gets deployed, but I can describe what the prototype is doing at the moment. And uh, I can also say that it's something that, you know, uh, I wish I had in some circumstances and other circumstances for myself. Mm -hmm. So what the app prototype does at the moment is that the main interface is the identification interface. So you point the uh, camera of your smartphone at your specimen, let's say a stink bug, and it uses the live video feed to constantly give you an updated uh, identification estimate. So it's not a static image that you once ping it and you get one answer. It's, it's an interactive experience where you can go with your camera around the bug, you can zoom in, you can zoom wow. out, you can make sure that you've got the focus right, you can try the other side of the insect, and constantly the identification estimate at the bottom changes. And you've got a tiny little thumbnail next to it, so you can kind of already see uh, this, this one looks like it might be a good one. And you can click on the name that's in the, in the list of suggestions down there and a I species see, profile see, yeah. with a larger example image pops up and allows you to compare. And, and that, that's actually really important to me, that uh, the end user doesn't blindly trust the model, but that they can second mm. guess what is being shown. So they can look at that example image then and say, 
oh, actually, I don't think this is right. So maybe I'll now try the other side of the insect or maybe I need to search for better light conditions. And when they found the one that matches, they, they can actually gain the confidence. Yeah, that looks exactly like the one that I'm seeing here. I love this. So this is great. Then you can go back to the uh, identification interface, and there's a button there that you just, it's, it's labeled safe at the moment. You just press that, and an observation record is created that uh, has the, whatever the camera sees at the second where you press the button. So you get a photo of, mm-hmm. the, of the bug. Um, it gets the coordinates where you've taken the photo. Potentially, it will also even give you the address, uh, depending on whether it can figure that out. And the moment that the time, the date and time where you took the photo becomes part of the file name. And then finally, obviously, it saves the identification estimate from the model with the name and the uh, confidence that it had all into that record. Now, you've got all these records then on the phone and the phone functionality that isn't implemented yet, of course, there's a little button then on the record display that would theoretically mm. allow you to upload that to some kind of door uh, database or uh, you know some web sort of service. platform that it can actually go in for the recognition. Exactly. Yeah. You know, where, where you could, I mean, this is the thing. Uh, you could then forward certain, you know, ones that you think are critical. You could forward them for uh, reporting for second, you know, examination by an entomologist by the department. Or you could use this, for example, and this is one thing that uh, was very important in the discussions I had around the weed seed identification key, to collect data for the department to analyze, to understand, you know, to to, do pathway analysis, for example. So even with things that the model can't sort out, you could then say, oh, we're suddenly starting to get this particular thing that looks like this. Mm. We don't know what it is. We're starting to get this coming in from that continent. What's so that's going trends. On I mean, that, that, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a big part of scientific research. Is that fair to say? Like trends and looking at certain things that are coming. It may not be in the specific field you've just looked at or what we're talking about here, but when you're seeing those trends, that must be invaluable for yourself. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, at the moment, I'm, I'm primarily thinking, of course, for what you mentioned earlier about then potentially going back as, as the department, going, going mm. back to importers and say, we're suddenly starting to get this from this area, we need to work together with you to look into why that has changed, what is happening. There could be any kinds of things behind it, like suddenly these containers are standing around for a long time in a certain place that hasn't been cleaned up or something like that, you know, and then then you can go even further back than, than the border. At least that's my understanding from those discussions and try to make it so that things don't even arrive in Australia and don't have to be cleaned up expensively because if you've brought your defenses out even further away from the border. Yeah, understood. Um, when we're talking about, we've just been speaking then about you know Dorwa and, and the fact that we've got our officers and, and staff members doing it. What about the public? I mean, is there an intention to sort of you know progress the concept into the public to be able to use the app and report and, and that sort of things? Yeah, so uh, there are certainly. Uh, I mean, in the first instance, currently the app is being tested by Dorwa staff, but that has certainly been a discussion. So. Um, whether then ultimately, you know, a year or two later, another version of the app gets uh, made available to the public with, you know, enough, uh, you know, functionality in there that it will help them uh, detect things behind the border. That That is a consideration for the midterm future. There is, however, you know, there's, there's a few things to be considered there. And this is also perhaps goes back to the question, why can't we just use a, you know, publicly available identification apps that are already out there, mm-hmm. like, you know, iNaturalist and so on. The question is then, 
what happens with the observation records. Um, there, there might be confidentiality issues in, in there and so on and so on. So that, okay. that is something, I guess, then for DOOR to really think about. What exactly do we want to give to people? Why? But um, again, sorry, I'm kind of, kind of, kind of, you know, mixing two things together here. There, there's first no, that's okay. Of, yeah, that's what we want to hear. Yeah, there, there's, there's first of all, that is a reason why you have to think carefully about how exactly you do it. And second, the question is then, are you competing with the kind of citizen science apps that are already out there? That, that is an important question because, of course, there's no sense in having 20 apps competing and then none of them can have a, have a critical user base. But the question is really that if, for example, you find a reportable weed or a, uh, a pest insect that needs to be eradicated. That is not necessarily the thing that perhaps everybody who reports that wants to see in a publicly available citizen science database. So having, having this niche of you helping the department uh, might be a different application than having, having the publicly available you know, nature enthusiast uh, citizen science app. So, so yeah, it goes both ways in a sense. Understood, understood. And is, that, is it fair to say that with the more apps that are out there and the more, you know, th this widespread functionality, does that lead to a lack of consistency as well? Like you said, you can't have a, a critical user base if it's so spread out, but also if there's an inconsistency in what's being offered to the person, I mean, does that, does that cause a problem as well? Yeah, um, I, there's two questions there, basically. I think there is uh, obviously value in having as large uh, an app and as large a user base, so to say, for any specific use case. But I also am very strongly opposed to this, this idea that, oh, there is one app already, so uh, we don't need yeah, another okay. one, because I really do think there are very different use cases. It makes a lot of difference whether, for example, you've got a, a really broad one that is for people having fun on their bushwalks, but it's uh, very opportunistic yep. in what kind of images being taken by people, and they take the same frequently observed species in their garden over and over. They take lots of photos of those, whereas uh, very specialized products, for example, by security sector, where you really want to be sure these are photos About of what you're identifying. Exactly, yep. these are photos yep. of expertly identified specimens. This is, you know, been been signed off by the expert for being really accurate in what we want to do. This is, is reducing the, the likelihood that we're making mistakes, and the data gets collected to the place where we're actually needed to do our risk assessments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I think just like there were, you know, many many different identification keys, there will also be different specialized modern identification tools using artificial intelligence in the future. Um, that that's precisely what I'm trying to say. The second thing about the Understood. consistency. So, yes, that that is is a problem. That um, some of the uh, I, I don't want to mention any names, obviously, but I've tried some of the existing identification apps that are out there, and some of mm -hmm. them do not provide to me a really good user experience. They are all a bit different, and I would really like to see something that informs you of the confidence that you have so that you can really interactively see what you know how how confident you can be or how the identification changes and uh, that allows you to second guess by confirming against you know a species profile and, and an example image or potentially several as opposed to just you know you pointed at something that has a name and you take it or leave it and you know that that's fun for walking around with you know your your kids on a bushwalk or whatever but it's it's not necessarily what a professional end user needs 
Understood, and, and and that's the importance of, as you mentioned before, in the sector that we're working with here, in particular, when it comes to biosecurity, it's very, very important that the identification processes are are very accurate. Uh, Alexander, my last question I'd like to talk to you about is is artificial intelligence as a whole. You know the way that it's benefiting biosecurity here as well. You've talked about the work um, that you're expanding into with non-European honeybees and that sort of thing. What I'd like to just get a gauge from you is over the next few years, how important do you see you know AI in terms of benefiting, you know, the biosecurity sector and, and many sectors. I'm sure you know, that the CSIRO works with and, and, and that science, you know, the challenge that comes with that. How important is AI? Because you know, I've, I've been fascinated to hear the way you know, the process of the app and the way that it works, but also you know the, the broad aspects of its application. When we're talking here about biosecurity specifically, other apps that look at things in the garden, but AI as a whole, though, when you can just, I, I guess, the concept of what I'm trying to explain here and and thinking for our listeners is that we can just hold. Your phone up against something and work out what it is. It's 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 an AI that's developing a long way from when I was a kid, for example. Yeah, so uh, I think the key the key problem here is that you always have to manage expectations. There are the extremes of some people who hear AI and think that's magic pixie dust and will solve all our problems. And at the other end of the spectrum, magic beans. Yeah, <laughs> I remember those. I remember those. At the other end of yeah. the spectrum, there are people who try it out once and it fails uh, to give them the right answer, and they think, "Oh, that's all nonsense, and it's never going to be uh, useful." Uh, the truth, of course, is somewhere in the middle. Um, there are really cases, and that I see that in the projects I've done so far, where it's really quite amazing how it can distinguish species. And uh, sometimes even where I'm not really sure how it does it, where, it's, where it must see something that I can't immediately put my finger on, but it works. On mm. the other hand, there will be cases. I mentioned before, you know, if you've got a group of little gray beetles, they all look the same until you take apart the, the male genitals, then, well, that is not the use case. So it will always be a part of the toolbox. It will always be just something that will help us to triage um, because in the end there are critical cases where then you want the taxonomist to have a look at it. You just don't want to overwhelm the taxonomist with 200 other cases that the AI could just yeah. sort out for you and, and the inspector already knows what's going on, right? But, but it's always going to be part of the toolbox together with uh, things like, um, you know, genetic sequencing and uh, human expertise and, I don't know, pheromones, for example. There are so, so many different innovative methods that are currently uh, coming out, uh, also funded by the, by the Biosecurity Innovation Fund. In general, uh, I, I just, you know, to answer the other part of your question there, I can mostly speak for image um, analysis, you know, like image classification, object detection. I can't really speak to all the other uses of artificial intelligence, like sound detection, for example, and so on. But yes, in, in my broader field, artificial intelligence is becoming more and more important. And so I'm also, for example, part of a, a CSRO internal project in our biological collections, again, that, that I'm coming from, National Research Collections mm -hmm. Australia, where we've got a postdoc who's working on extracting uh, trait information from our image specimen collections using artificial intelligence. So that is then part of our, you know, collection science uh, research and, and, you know, evolutionary biology and so on. So, so this is going to become a big part of our toolbox, but still, again, one of many, many tools. It's not magic pixie dust. 
Fantastic. All right, well, I'll put the magic bean request aside then for the time <laughs> being, Alexander, and we'll, we'll wait for this to develop. But look, that's absolutely magnificent. Um, thank you very much for, for that explanation as well. I look forward to seeing how AI develops. And, and more than anything, I'd like to say a big thank you to you for joining us today. That's, that's a very interesting insight into the work that's been doing to develop these apps uh, for identification purposes and, and also the great work that um, all, all of you and your fellow scientists do to, to keep our country safe and, and work in innovative ways to help us. So on behalf of everybody here at Detect and Protect and all of our listeners, I'd like to say a big thank you to you for joining us today. Thank you. It was truly a pleasure. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, all of our listeners. That was Dr. Alexander Schmidt-Laboon. Great insights today into the new technology, and we're hoping that it will become operational very soon. We know that these things take some time to get developed, but it's all heading in the right direction. Primary prevention, of course, another one of our key messages today that we pass on in the Detect and Protect podcast, and hopefully in future, uh, everybody can have one of these apps on their phone and look out for things uh, when it comes to biosecurity. Thanks very much, everybody, for tuning into our podcast again this time around. The series is really taking off and we've had some great guests on it and I look forward to our next guests in the future podcast. You'll be able to find out more information on Australian Biosecurity on the department's website or also by visiting biosecurity.gov.au. We'll make some links available in the episode description and fingers crossed in future, uh, keep an eye on the website. We'll be able to provide some information about how you can hopefully download the app if we get it to that point in future, but it's all going the right way. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast series to get updates on future topics and learn more about biosecurity. My name is Steve Payos. I've been your host again, and please stay tuned for the next episode of Detect and Protect.